Good morning, my name is Jason. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8 from the Message Translation. But here on this mountain, God of the angel armies will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish death forever, and God will wipe the tears from every face. He'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people wherever they are. Yes, God says so. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Rachel Hare, and the New Testament reading is found in Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brian Hare. Please stand with me for the gospel reading. Found in Luke 5:27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Gospel of the Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes that we would see you. We pray that you would open our ears that we would hear you. We pray that you would open our hearts that we might love you and serve you and follow you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in a short three-week series called Worship, Connect, and Serve. Those are three easy, obvious, plain-to-understand words. When we talk about what we do together as the church, a lot of times people say, so New Life Church, what do you do? Well, these three words kind of lay it out, don't they? We worship together, we connect with one another, and then we serve one another. But specifically, some of you, some of you maybe you're like me, you prefer images or metaphors or stories. And so for us, you'll know that the image of the table is really important to us. And Pastor Evan did a fabulous job unpacking this last week, but the table really comes to represent the life of the church. And so when you say, well, where do you worship? Well, we gather to worship at the the Lord's table, and then we connect with one another at your table, and then we serve uh, the, the church and the city and the world by preparing a table for others to meet the Lord. And so as we think about table language, a lot of times we use
use the, the, the phrases blessed, broken, and given because Jesus at meals, uh, very often in the Gospels it says he took the bread, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it. And that's a way of understanding our whole life, not only as followers of Jesus, but as a church. That we gather, guess what happens when we gather and worship at the Lord's table? We remember our blessedness in Christ. And guess what happens when we connect with one another at your table? We begin to be broken and let our lives be shared with each other. And then when we connect by, or when we serve by preparing a table, that's when we recognize that, you know what, we have been given. Jesus has given us for the sake of the world. Our lives are to be spent in his service. So today is kind of this middle word, this idea of, of connecting and connecting specifically at your table. Now, meals are an interesting thing, aren't they? Meals, when you think about it, over the last few decades have gone through significant changes. Uh, for better or for worse, probably mostly for worse, we have a lot of easy-to-access prepackaged foods. And so there's been kind of this reaction against it and say, hey, are these real foods? Are these actual things? What, what are we eating here? How much of this has been modified or changed and all of that? And maybe there's some benefit to it, but you know what's happened is food has become functional. And so it's like, well, I'm hungry. Let me just grab something. I'll just drive through here, go there, get this, run to the store, get a box, get a can, put it in the microwave, voila. Food has become functional. Now, as food has become functional, there's also become this swing back, this return to say, hey, what about the art of making a meal? What about the art of preparing a meal? And so all of a sudden, we want to learn. And actually, there's been a little surge of movies about meals and, and meal prep and the art of, of, of uh, I was going to say the art of eating, but it's really the art of preparing <laughs> food. But eating's fun, too. And maybe part of, the, um, part of the reason food has become functional and fast and easy is because it allows us to avoid all of the awkwardness that happens at the table. Because think about this, when you go to a restaurant, your individual, you can assert your individuality. You get to look through a menu, you get to choose what you feel like eating, and then you can have it. And so someone else might say, well, I, I'd rather like the salmon today. And you say, oh, not me, I can't stand, I'm going to have the steak. And someone else says, oh, not me, I'll have the salad. I don't know why that voice, but you know, it sort of fits. <laughs> and, and, and we can have our own kind of individual sort of preferences at restaurants. But guess what happens when friends or family gather around the same table. Everybody eats what's been prepared. In fact, odds are at some point in your life you heard an adult, maybe a parent say, hey, listen, man, this home is not a restaurant. I'm not making four different meals, okay? What we're eating is what's for dinner. You know, this is, this, this is what we're going to all eat together. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But the point is when you gather at a common table, you have to yield your individuality. You have to yield your individuality. You say, well, I wasn't really feeling like having that, but that's what we're having. Okay. But when you go through fast food or drive throughs whatever, you get to maintain your individuality. You get to, in fact, have strong, clear independence that says, well, I don't care about you, but I'm going to do this. But there's something about a shared meal that confronts our independence. And maybe that's why we don't like it. Maybe we don't like it because it actually highlights all the ways we are not like the people that we actually have to eat with. So, well, I don't really, I'm not really like them. I mean, I don't know, you have funny tastes and you, you know. And so the table can actually very often be a place of division, 
a place of confrontation and a place where our differences are pronounced because of cultures or preferences or whatever it is. But a table can also be an occasion for unity. Recently, we watched this movie a couple months back, The Hundred Foot Journey. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about an Indian family that immigrates from India to, of all places, the French countryside. And they set up a restaurant a hundred feet away from a French cuisine that's already earned one Michelin star. And so at first, food becomes the focal point of how different these people are. And so it's all with them with their funny music and smelly spices and, and the French, you know, they sort of drum up the French snobbish, snobbish, snobbishness, you know, and, and kind of how they delight in their own cuisine. And, until one of the sons decides he's going to learn French cooking. And they're like, oh no, a traitor, he has defected to the other side, you know. And I'm, I'm ruining the movie for you, but it's really much better than my summary. And then he starts to kind of do this fusion thing where some of his, um, you know, kind of sensibilities about cooking and some of what he's learning about French, it, it blends together and it results in this r- remarkable story. So the table can be an unlikely place where all of a sudden people who are not alike start to sit down and bleed on each other, merge together, your spices and my non-spices and whatever. Jesus in the Gospels, this is a little bit like what we see happening in the story. You heard the Gospel reading this morning. If you turn there to Luke chapter 5, we'll just read two verses, verse 29 and verse 30. It says, then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus in his home, and a large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with him. I think it's pretty interesting, even the word choice, others. Others, people who are not like the normal characters. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And the Pharisees and their legal experts grumbled against his disciples, and they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We need to kind of take a step back and say, who are the characters in this story? Some of you, if you've been around church for a little while, you, you maybe are familiar with this, and you're like, oh yeah, Jesus ate with tax collectors, but who, who are these people? So let's take the two groups, tax collectors. The shorthand way of describing who they are is to say tax collectors are basically collaborators with Rome. The reason I'm saying this is because any Jew would have seen Rome as an oppressive regime, an oppressive force. In fact, for a people that had been promised their own land and had been given instructions for how to live off that land and cultivate their land, the fact that they were in their land but not really able to possess it was a mark of shame. Was, it, was actually a reason for great sadness. It's not that they didn't have an understanding of percentage giving. You see even in the Old Testament that when they lived in their land, they were familiar with bringing something to, to the temple for sacrifice, for worship, even to build the temple. There, were, there was a time when they gave a little bit more. But it, those were things that strengthened their sense of national identity. Now here they were where some pagan king living in a faraway place called Rome is imposing his rule on us and taking a large percentage of our earnings, of our money. This was an abomination. So taxes themselves were an abomination. Some of you are like, I know, amen, preach it, brother. And tax collectors then were seen as people who not only weren't bothered by the fact that Rome was oppressing them, but they were collaborating with Rome. So now a tax collector is not just someone who's indifferent to our suffering, but someone who's collaborating with the oppressor. Saying, you, how could you do this? And then to make it worse, tax collectors had earned this reputation of being dishonest. 
So if a person owed 30 shekels or whatever, they might say, actually, it's 40. So they could keep 10 for themselves. And so now we're not just ha- we don't just have people who are treacherous, who are, who are collaborating with the oppressor. They're actually dishonest. Now, actually, there's quite a bit of parallels with this even in our own world. There are ways that we collaborate and collude more directly with systemic injustice, ways that we perpetuate systems that oppress people, ways that we dishonestly profit from it while someone else stays down. So we are not as unlike the tax collector as you might think. Now, what about the other group, the Pharisees? Who are they? Well, the Pharisees... If I were to say a word, probably you'd choose a word like legalist, hypocrite, whatever. But what I want to say is the Pharisees are covenant partners with God. Say, excuse me? What? I would not say, I wouldn't choose that. Here's why I'm saying this. Pharisees believed that they as Jews, they as the, the family of Abraham, were God's chosen family, God's covenant people. The ones that God said, I'm choosing you, not because of anything you did, but I'm choosing you. And they said, yes, yay. And then God said, since I've chosen you, this is how you're supposed to live. And they're like, great, we're going to live that way. Except they didn't, right? And so Pharisees were the group who said, you know what? Um, Maybe God's not blessing us because we're not quite living exactly the way he wants us to. So let's be as good as we can possibly be. Let's keep every law we could think of and then some so that God will bless us more. Psalm 18, it's not on the screen, but listen to this. Psalm 18, verse 23. I have lived with integrity before him. I have kept myself from wrongdoing. And so, if then, right? If then. And so, the Lord restored me for my righteousness because my hands are clean in his eyes. This was like, this could have been the like refrigerator magnet verse for every Pharisee. I have kept my hands clean, and so the Lord rescued me because of my righteousness. Now, when I describe it that way, that the Pharisee is the person who believed that they could behave in such a way that God was bound to bless them, all of a sudden, that doesn't sound like a legalist. That sounds like you. That sounds like me. That sounds like 21st century Western Christianity. Religious performance. If I could just have the right amount of prayer times and quiet times, then maybe my business will be blessed. And then the converse, right? When something bad happens, like, oh, maybe I wasn't giving enough or doing enough or serving enough. Let me just get back. And we read all these if-thens in the Bible through the lens of religious performance. And now all of a sudden, the Pharisees are not way back then. They're looking you in the mirror. It's you and me. What do we do about this? The Pharisees were the people who expected God to save the righteous and judge the sinner. They were being obedient and being faithful, and they believed the world is divided into two kinds of people, the righteous and the sinful. And when God shows up on the scene, he's going to save the righteous. Oh, how good it is to be me. And he's going to judge those sinners. This is what God's going to do. This is the world according to the Pharisees. Now, this theme of division even around meals carries on throughout the New Testament. In fact, Luke, who wrote this gospel, wrote a second volume called Acts. And in the book of Acts, Luke shows how the table becomes a place of division even into the New Testament, even among Christians. 
And so then there's this Jew and Gentile thing where they're like, hey, should we eat with them? Should we not eat with them? I mean, how good are they? And in a sense, it started becoming about religious superiority. Who was, I know we're all in Christ, but who's like really, really special? And they made that marker over who were the Jewish Christians versus who were the Gentile Christians. Listen to this. This is Paul in Galatians. But when Cephas, and he's talking about Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, gentle Paul, because he was wrong, clearly. He had been eating with the Gentiles before people came from James. What's he talking about? James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the, Jew, the center of Jewish Christianity. And so here's Peter going out to these Gentile cities, eating with all these other Christians, and then when leaders come from the Jewish Christian hub, he's like, oh, I don't know what they're going to think. I better change what I'm doing here. When they came, he began to back out and separate himself because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined them in their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I love that. They weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of everyone, if you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's saying, hey, listen, they're in Christ. You're in Christ. What else matters? Uh, well, I mean, you see, there's this. And, there, and they had these ID badges, if you will. Jewish, the Jewish people for years, because of living in exile, had developed ways of separating, of marking their identity. It was how they kept certain days. It's how they ate a certain way. And Paul's saying, okay, those were, that was cool back then, but listen, now that we're all in Christ, that's the only ID badge you'll ever need. That's why we heard Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Colossians verse in our New Testament reading. You are defined by Christ. You have been included by Christ. Nothing else matters. Now, when we make decisions about our life, a big part of our identity is shaped by who we hang out with. It absolutely is. And it's, in a way, rightfully so. Sociologically, this is what humans do because we are social creatures. Part of defining and figuring out who we are is defining who our friends are and who our associations are. And so we draw little circles and we draw little lines. We say, well, this is kind of my people. This is where I fit. This is where I belong. That's, there's part of that that is an essential part of being human. This is what we do. We, 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 we do this. I remember when I... Um, first moved here to Colorado, I desperately wanted to be what I perceived to be Colorado. And so, you know, for years in college, I had either been kind of the theology nerd kid that, that hung out in the library and worked in the library, and or the artsy music worship kid. And I thought, well, here I am. I'm arriving in Colorado. I drive a Jeep. Like, I think I'm going to be like Colorado. And so I, would, I, would, I, found, I met some people that I thought, man, that, that, that guy is cool. Like, I want to be like him, you know? And I noticed he was like, had REI gear and like, you know, it's, that's like the sport coat in Colorado. It was a North Face jacket, you know, uh, Chaco flip-flops or whatever. Chaco sandals or like dress shoes. And so I'm like, okay, I think I'm, I'm catching this. And so I was single at the time really excited to kind of define new associations, shape new identities. So I, I even on a Saturday morning like got up really early and waited outside for an REI garage sale. 
I bought a tent. It said two-person, but then when I set it up, I was like, how come it's only like this high off the ground, you know? I was, all the tents I had been in, was, you know, it's like the Walmart kind where you can walk in and out and there's like rooms in it. I later found out that these were the tents you used for backpacking so you could go in like really unpopulated areas. And then I started to get kind of scared because like, what about animals and stuff, you know? <laughs> you, what about the campsites that have like campsites and like a toilet nearby? Then there was a friend that I started kind of hanging out with after the Friday night meal service, and, and he had a Jeep, but a Jeep Wrangler, so he was really cool. And, um, and he was like, man, let's go off-roading. There's a bunch of us that are going, you know, Friday night, nighttime. It's like, cool, man, I'm in. You know, like, I'm defining my new circle. This is me now, right? So I get in the Jeep with him, and, and we're doing this off-roading thing somewhere, and, um, and I'm, he's like, woo! And I'm like praying in tongues really quietly under my breath, like, Lord, is this how my life ends, you know? And we start to skid, and we just gently kind of hit a tree. Now, not enough to do damage. We were okay. Someone had to come pull us a bit out. And, then, and I kind of made an inner vow that night that I am not really that guy. <laughs> so I found other people who also appreciate the outdoors from a cabin, you know? And so that's been really good. So anyway... But we shape a bit of who we are by our associations, by deciding who will be close and who won't be. But when do circles become a problem? Circles become a problem when they become impermeable. When all of a sudden nobody can leave the circle or the group and nobody can enter it. When they don't breathe, when they don't shuffle, when the deck doesn't reshuffle every once in a while and say, well, who... who?" That's when circles become exclusive. So let me ask you two questions. The first is going to be phrased more from the the sharper edge of exclusion. Who would you not eat with? You know, who who, who would you not eat with? Oh, Glenn, no, I would eat with anybody. No, but just think about it. There's some people who said, I'd I'd be happy to just kind of meet them, shake their hand, but have them over for a meal. Who would you not eat with? I was talking with one of our congregants this morning who told me she was attending a meeting where Lutheran Family Services said that Colorado Springs is one of 10 cities that has been chosen to receive a a huge influx of refugees from Syria and Iraq. And I was excited, and she said, "Uh, listen, I I don't, she said, you know, we're not the best at welcoming people who are different from us. I said, "Mm, you're right. That's interesting. Who would you not eat with? Who would you say, ah, stay over there, please? Maybe let's phrase the question on a gentler edge. Is there room at your table? Is there room at your table? See, I'm not saying you don't have friends. I'm not saying don't have consistent friends. You you need to have consistent friends. But is there ever room for someone else to join? See, Jesus... He's at this meal with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And who invited him to this meal? According to Luke, it's Levi. And who's Levi? Well, it's not completely clear if it's the same person, but, but it's possible that Levi is another name for Matthew, who's one of Jesus' 12. So picture this. Jesus has his circle of 12, and then one of the guys in his circle has another circle of his old buddies. And he says, Jesus, would you come into this circle? And Jesus could have said, no, this is my circle. Jesus, I've got my circle. Thank you very much, Levi. This is my band of brothers. 
He says, no, okay, leave. I'll go into your circle. I'll step into your circle. See, there is a point where friendships, as good and as nourishing as they are, can become exclusive and stale because we're not willing for anyone to come in. See, some people say, oh, my church, my church. Dude, I don't need that stuff. My church is like me and my bros. We put like a steak on the grill. We throw back a couple of beers. That is my church, dude. Awesome. Is there anyone there that's not like you? No, dude, no way. Bro, we are all so tight. We all have swords with our names engraved. Like, we're so, we're like in. Like, man, that's kind of weird, but also kind of cool. Is there anybody there who's not like you? <laughs> this is the sort of thing that I, I think there's many beautiful things about the house church movement. But people who have this attitude, if I may be honest, as I've said this to people face to face, people who have this attitude give the house church movement a bad name. Because actually what you're doing, is, it doesn't even resemble church. Because the church that Jesus began is one that involves people who are like you and people who are not like you. And the beauty of being part of a congregation is that you're going to stand and sit and worship and pray with people that you love and people you're like, ooh, kind of weirded out by. And actually, the only thing you might have in common with them is that you both have been captivated by Jesus. Paul says you are defined by Christ. You have been included by Christ. Friends, if anything else means more to you than the fact that you've been included by Christ, you haven't got the gospel. You haven't got the gospel. Because the gospel always pushes us outward and says, who, who, who else are you forgetting? Who else? Is, is there room for anyone else? Even occasionally? Even once in a while? So this is what I love what Evan was saying about the community Bible experience. It's eight weeks. That means if you do this every week for eight weeks and you hate the people, it's over. Alleluia, Christ is risen. At Easter, you'll be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay. But it's a chance to say, can I take a risk? Can I let someone else in? Some of you, you might be like, well, if I kind of wanted to try this meal group thing, but I'm no good at leading. This thing works like a book club. And all the materials are given to you. All you got to do is facilitate it. Is there room in your, in your life? Is it possible to open up just a little bit more? Or do we have our boundaries and our markers that are so tight? Well, I'm like this, and they're like that, and she's like this, and I'm like that, and I don't believe in this, and they believe in that. And... Right. Verse 31, Luke 5. And Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. The overarching theme in all four Gospels is that Jesus is God who has come at last. Yahweh who showed up on the scene. Israel's long-awaited God who has come at last. The question is, what did he do when he came at last? Did he do what the psalmist thought he would do? Judge the sinner and save the righteous? Did he do what the Pharisee thought he would do? Jesus shows up and he doesn't come to judge the sinner and save the righteous. 
Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm here to save, but to save the sinner. To save the sinner. Like, whoa, whoa, I I wasn't expecting that. I thought when you came, you were going to divide the world into two groups and you were going to say to the sinners, shame on you, and to the righteous, come on, let's get out of here. What what, what do you mean Jesus came at last and he says, I am here to save, but guess who I'm here to save? The sinner. Now, every commentary that I read over this last couple weeks about this text said, Jesus is not saying some people are sinners and some people are pretty good. It's a subversive way of saying, actually, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who know they are sinners and those who don't know it yet. Those who know they need a Savior and those who don't know it yet. But as far as who's a sinner and who's not, oh, that, that's all of y'all. <laughs> that's all of us. We're all sick in need of a physician. We're all sinners in need of saving. And Jesus shows up and says, I've come to save, but I'm including all. And when I draw a circle, I'm drawing a really big one, a really big one. Now the choice is up to you to say whether you know that you need it or whether you don't think that you do. See, in our meal groups, we, we speak about this word, broken, but we don't mean broken in like an Eeyore kind of sense, Eeyore Christian kind of sense. You're like, oh, woe is me. I'm broken. <laughs> Good morning, Eeyore, Pooh says. I suppose. <laughs> we mean broken as in humility and vulnerability. Humility and vulnerability. Broken as in the way of being humble and vulnerable in order to be hospitable. Now, let me, let me blow up this word for you. Hospitality in the Bible, in, hospitality theologically, is not the southern goodness of sweet tea and fresh baked cookies. Hospitality theologically is welcoming the stranger. That's why I think it's interesting that Luke says tax collectors and others. The people that we've put in another big circle over here and said, them. Them. Who is that? Who is the stranger for you? Republicans, Democrats, people who watch Fox News, people who watch CNN, people who like Obama, people who don't. Am I messing with you? Does being included by Jesus mean more to you than any other label? Does being defined by Christ trump all the other ways you could define yourself? That's what the gospel is meant to do. You know, yesterday we... um, we, we took the kids to a movie. We see like one movie a year because it, it, when it, it all adds up, it's just so ridiculously expensive when you take everyone and then you got to buy popcorn. Anyway, so we go to like one movie a year. And yesterday we went and took the kids and we saw Paddington, which was really beautiful and, and, and well done. But in all my childhood years of reading Paddington, the movie helped me see something that I had never noticed before. And that is Paddington is basically an undocumented immigrant. <laughs> I mean, Truly. He sneaks in on a boat from darkest Peru 
he shows up at a train station with a label around his neck, hoping for someone to take him in. And it, very gently, the movie helps you see it through that lens. <laughs> and I, I think there's something beautiful about that. Now, the movie tries to reach in to fuel that kind of hospitality by, by reaching into nostalgia. We used to be a certain kind of people in England, and now we're cold. You know. But for Christians, we know that nostalgia is not strong enough to fuel a, a hospitality that is that radical. You can't summon your good old-fashioned American values to turn you into a truly Christ-like hospitality, hospitable person. Can't summon it. You can't summon all your goodwill. You can't say, you know what, I will be a, a Christ-centered, hospitable person, a Christ type of hospitable person because of what? My money, my goodness, my morals, my upbringing. No, actually, sometimes those things work against it. The only way you become this kind of person is when you've been conquered by this kind of love. The only way we welcome the stranger is when you recognize that we were strangers to this grace. We were strangers to this commonwealth of grace, but God brought us in. But God brought us in. See, church, could we be a people that are so overtaken by grace that we don't divide the world in groups. And we say, you know what? Once I was blind, now I see. Once I was lost, I've been found. Once I was a stranger, but he welcomed me. And every Sunday when you come forward with your hands like this, it's an occasion to remember, God, you fed me when I was your enemy. And what you fed me with was your own life, your body and your blood. I think all of these stories of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners is just a foreshadow of what Jesus would do at the cross. Jesus, the one who gives his own body, spills his own blood, and says there is no person that is too far outside. There is no one who is too strange. There is no one who doesn't belong. Now, if any whosoever will may come and be included and defined by Christ. That's the radical hospitality of the gospel. And you know the beauty of this story? It's Levi's party. No, it's not. By the end of these short few verses, it becomes very clear. It's Levi's house, but it's Jesus' party. I think that should be the slogan for meal groups. It's your house, but it's Jesus' party. <laughs> Just open up the doors and let Jesus welcome people in. Amen?